Welcome to We Have This Hope. My name is Emily Curzon. This is a podcast about the study of scripture, the art of remembering, and the practice of telling. On the show, we'll explore the ways God calls his people to remember by studying scripture together, and we'll hear individual stories of hope anchored in the beautiful and ancient practice of remembering. I'm so glad you're here. Hey, welcome back, friends. We are back from fall break, and it's definitely feeling like fall where I live. It's been a rainy, soup-eating kind of day, and I'm so happy about it. So very happy to be in my sweatpants. (laughs) Our little family had a fun weekend in Kansas City. We got to see some college friends, took the kids to Legoland, and celebrated a wedding of some dear friends. And we're always marveling how each trip we do with our kids, it gets more fun and it gets a little easier, actually a lot easier. And I just say that as encouragement really quickly before we start the episode to any other young moms out there who are listening. We, Dustin and I, are graduates of traveling high chairs, pack and plays, double strollers, sound machines, blackout curtains, bottles, even nap times. And yes, all of those were plural because remember, we have twins plus a big kid. So I like truly, I barely remember some of the trips that we took with the twins when they were little. And that's probably just God's kindness to me. (laughs) There's hope. That's all I'm saying. One day they can stay up later and eat whatever and even pack their own bag for the car. Okay. We're picking back up with our season on spaces we occupy Does God care about the spaces, the physical spaces that we occupy? How does he meet us in those spaces? What does scripture say and what can we experience now as modern people in those spaces? Today, we're talking about foreign lands, the spaces beyond our familiar and safe context. The last episode in this series, we talked about church buildings and the places we worship, which was kind of weird timing for me personally, because that was the same week our church made some key decisions about our own physical space. And this one also feels like weird timing for a lot of reasons that sort of expand out metaphorically in concentric circles from little old me to the big wide world beyond Emily. And I hope you know what that means. Maybe you can think about as we're talking through this episode, how that might apply to you. God just seems to operate in themes for me, and I love that. And I'm praying I'll be fully awake to those, and I hope you will too, And as you listen. We're operating largely in themes today too. What I mean by that is rather than zooming in on one specific passage of Scripture, we're going to do a broader overview of the Old Testament and look at the ways God's people find themselves in foreign lands. If you're even somewhat familiar with the Bible, you know that's a lot of times, which is why I didn't just pick one. I couldn't. There's so many good ones you're going to see. So I want to begin where things naturally begin, which is the garden. But actually, as I'm saying this, I want to qualify it by putting out there that my goal in all of these episodes, anytime I talk about scripture, anytime like this where I'm doing a broad overview, my heart is to just look at what I think the Bible says, 
Why did it matter? Why does it still matter? Those three questions. I hope that you will too, and that you will take anything that I say submitted to you with humility and do what one of my dear friends always says about anything that he teaches on or lectures on. He always says, feel free to accept, reject, or adapt. So I put that out before you and let's get started. We're going to begin with Adam and Eve in the very beginning of Genesis. Remember that in the beginning, God created Adam and Eve and they are in the garden and everything is awesome. Everything is perfect. And what happens, what we see in the garden is they're sent out after they sin. They move from what is familiar and safe to what is unfamiliar and therefore inherently unsafe. This is Genesis 3, 23 through 24. It says, so the Lord God banished him, Adam, from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden, cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So what's interesting here is that the Holman Illustrated Bible Commentary says the Hebrew text actually states the Lord God sent Adam from the garden so that he would not reach out for the garden's fruit. What we see here is that God banished them. Ooh, that's kind of a hard word, but that's what it says. He drove them out and he blocked the way back. I think that's interesting. Next, we have our friend Abraham. Now, if you remember the story of Abraham, Abram, before he is named Abraham, Abram is called to a foreign land to leave his home. And in Genesis 12, 1, it says, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. And what we see next in scripture is this series of events where God promises to make Abram into a great nation. We get the Abrahamic covenant. And then Abram travels out. It says he leaves Haran and he sets out for the land of Cana. When he gets to the land, God reaffirms his promise. Then he makes a tent and he travels toward Bethel. Then he moves to Egypt a few times. Then he goes back to Bethel. You get the idea. Abraham is wandering about. God has called him to a foreign land. But this time we see that when God calls him to leave, he also promises several things. But what I want you to hear is that God calls him to leave and he promises to meet his needs. The next character on the scene that's called to a foreign land or goes to a foreign land is Jacob. I'm skipping Isaac, interestingly enough, because Isaac was called to stay, which, you know, is a whole topic for another episode. Anyway, Jacob is a bit of a wanderer. And if you follow his whole story, you see that Jacob flees home, returns, flees home, returns, all the way until he dies in Egypt with his sons. And in his early years, he flees from Beersheba after stealing the birthright from his twin brother Esau. Remember that story? It says he travels like 400 miles to Haran to stay with his uncle Laban. And this is where he's going to start his family. This is where we get the famous story of story of him working to marry Rachel and he gets tricked and it's Leah and he ends up marrying them both. Anyway, Jacob later flees from Laban, his uncle, 
faces his brother Esau again. He wrestles mysteriously with God. And then he arrives back in Cana, where like his ancestors, he pitches a tent and sets up an altar. He runs around a few more times and then eventually goes home to Cana again after Rachel's death to bury his father Isaac. And there he stays and raises his sons until ultimately dying in Egypt. So what I want you to remember from the story of Jacob, first of all, go back and read it. It is such a wild ride. But Jacob is forced to leave because of his sinful choices. Recall, he's stolen the birthright. He and his mom have conspired against his father and his twin brother. He's stolen the birthright, and he's forced to leave to a foreign land because of sinful choices. But God still meets with him, provides for him, remains faithful to his promises to extend the covenant through Jacob and Jacob's sons. Speaking of Jacob's sons, my favorite, probably my most favorite biblical like arc narrative is the life of Joseph. Joseph's brothers, if you remember, are the 12 tribes of Israel. These are the 12 sons of Jacob, and his brothers resent him because he's the favorite son. And so they decide to sell him, and he's taken to Egypt. This is Genesis 37, 28. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. What we see here is that Joseph is taken against his will to a foreign land because of the choices of his brothers. But the story continues, and we see that God is with him. There's a famine in the land, and Joseph has prepared for it in Egypt. He's risen to prominence. He's like the right-hand man of Pharaoh. And his brothers, not knowing all of this, travel to Egypt to get grain because they don't have any grain. There's a famine. And Joseph ultimately reveals himself and says that God has used this all to continue fulfilling his promises to Israel. He brings his aging father Jacob and his brothers to Egypt to live with him there under the assurance from Pharaoh that what all their needs would be met. This is Genesis 46, 3. I am God, the God of your father. He said, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Those are God's words to Jacob. Here we see God confirms the call to leave home, reaffirms his promises, and then he adds something that we haven't yet seen. He says he will bring them back home. Onward to Moses, guys. <laughs> Moses is born into a foreign land. He's born into captivity but is raised as an Egyptian by Pharaoh's daughter. He's in a foreign land, but he's enjoying privilege. And I think he has some internal conflict over this. And we see that kind of right at the beginning. Things like, am I a Hebrew or am I an Egyptian? Where does my loyalty lie? And then he flees to Midian after murdering an Egyptian and marries a non-Israelite, non-Egyptian, with whom he has a son named Gershom, which at this. This is what the name means. I have become an alien in a foreign land. This is in Exodus 2. 
Moses is one who we could look to when our identity is confusing, when we aren't sure which group we belong to. There's a whole other lesson in this story about God choosing this man who seems to be a foreigner in all contexts to be the one who leads God's people home. So cool. Think about that for a minute in the story of Moses. So what do all of these Old Testament heroes, figures, archetypes have to say to us about foreign lands? Why does it matter? As I was reading this, here are some things I thought about. Does God know the trouble they will face? Did he orchestrate these things or are they a result of their choices that God works in spite of? The how is a bit theologically complex. The how being, how did they get to the foreign land? How is this all happening? How is this all making sense in the story of God? It's a little complex and one that scholars will differ on. But I do think for us today, the takeaway is mainly that God was with them. God did not forget them. And God constantly reaffirmed his own promises to them, saying, I will fulfill the promises that I have made. So let's jump to the New Testament for just a minute. Remember in the beginning when Jesus was born and Mary and Joseph actually fled to Egypt. This is in Matthew chapter two. It says, when they, the Magi had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So I just think that's interesting. It's, you know, it's not in all the gospels, but here we see that God is calling people to foreign lands for their own protection and for the fulfillment of his promises. And Jesus, from the very beginning of his life, understands what that's like. Other things to think about when we look at the life of Jesus. Jesus was someone who slept in tents, they think, outside of the city centers. You know, he started in a cattle trough. That's worth noting. He slept on the ground. He slept in a boat in the middle of a storm. He was by nature transient and foreign, a friend of foreigners, and generally a misfit for his own context. And let's not leave out Matthew 28, the Great Commission. After the resurrection, Jesus is ascending into heaven, and he says these words in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. He says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. What is striking to me here is that Jesus ends his embodied earthly ministry by calling his disciples to go to foreign contexts contexts and teach the gospel and the promise he gives them is what? He says he will be with them. This is exactly what we've seen God do at each step in foreign spaces throughout scripture. In each of our stories in the Old Testament, God is with them. God is with them. And here as Jesus is ascending into heaven, the call he gives is to go to these foreign spaces And the promise he gives is, I will be with you. So why does this still matter? 
that's always the last question that I ask in looking at scripture. How does this still apply to me, apply to us as modern people? Well, in looking at the story of scripture and the theme of foreign lands, here are a few things that I notice. Sometimes God moves us from home into foreign places because of our choices. Sometimes God moves us from home into foreign spaces because of his really good divine purposes. Sometimes we're moved to foreign spaces because of the choices of others, from the decisions of those in our inner circle to even the decisions of like the broader context of people and nations around us, impacting conditions in such a way that we're forced to go. Sometimes God gives us wisdom to leave and find shelter in foreign places. And sometimes we don't know which way is home, which land is foreign, which land is familiar, but God is with us. I want to end on this thought. I was talking to my husband about this in the car over the weekend and this idea of home and foreign spaces. And he, he brought up the comparison of order versus chaos. Basically in the garden, Adam and Eve lived in the beauty and the plenty of God's orderly world. God is a God of order, but outside of the garden, there was chaos, a foreign context where darkness had power to overshadow light. And in the Old Testament, God's people wandered toward home through many chaotic and foreign environments. Life never felt fully settled. They were always waiting for the next movement of God, the next movement of the world around them. And yet, in all this uncertainty, God was with them. He never abandoned his people or his promises. And in my deep dive into scripture on this topic, that's just simply what stands out the most to me. So wherever your theology may lie on God's sovereignty versus our own, those bigger how questions, what is indisputable in this space we sometimes occupy, foreign spaces, is that we are not forgotten, we are not forsaken, and God will fulfill his promises to us. In the end of the story of scripture, we know that God will make all things new, but what I love is that this ultimately means that God will bring himself home to us. We aren't drifting away into foreign territory to another mysterious out there place. God will bring heaven to earth again, and this time he'll be setting up residence and making that his home. There won't be a foreign context anymore. He will restore the order and safety and familiarity of the garden to us God's people here on earth. Revelation 21.3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. What foreign context are you in? My parents are dear friends with a family of refugees from Afghanistan, and they are quite literally living out the reality of being people displaced and in a foreign land. But maybe your situation is more like mine. 
I'm living in a rental house that I don't really like because my home is a remodeled mess right now and it's not a mess that I chose. Or maybe you're in college, away from home for the first time and lonely and wondering how to find friendship and safety where you live now. Maybe you're in a foreign season, a new parent or like a new parent to more than one kid or an adult realizing your body is aging and you can't trust it quite like you could 20 years ago. Or maybe you're in a grief season or a depression season and you're not sure how you got there, but it certainly feels like chaos rather than, rather than order. We all have one, a foreign context, because until Christ returns and restores the earth, we'll always be squinting our eyes trying to make sense of where we belong here and now. But whatever your context, what is true and what encouragement for you I have for you today is that God is with you right now. He sees you. He loves you. He will not forget you. And your work is not wasted. One of my all-time favorite theologians in T. Wright talks about this idea so beautifully in his book, Surprised by Hope. And if anybody doesn't have it and wants it, just tell me and I will send it to you. It's so good. And in it, he speaks to what we do not, um, that what we do now matters in the age to come. What we do now in our foreign context is not wasted. So I want to end with his words as an encouragement to us as we walk bravely into our ordinary, often chaotic, often foreign lives as the dearly loved children of God. These are the words of N.T. Wright from his book, Surprised by Hope. What you do in the Lord is not in vain. You're not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You're not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown on the fire. You're not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. Every act of love, gratitude, kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of his creation, every minute spent teaching a handicapped child to read or to walk, every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings, and for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures. And of course, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world, all of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God, into the new creation that God will one day make.